0: In light of the current COVID-19 circumstances, this podcast is a compilation of three telephone conversations which were recorded as three separate segments on three successive days, March 31st, April 1st, and April 2nd. Unbeknownst to us at the time, global cases of COVID-19 rose above one million on April 2nd, with our southern neighbor, the United States, having the dubious distinction of currently leading the world with about 25% of all cases on this planet at the time of this recording and continuing to pull away from the rest of the COVID-19-infected nations. You're listening to The SIL Podcast with Peter Noce and Harry Posner. Episode 122 Ph Factor COVID 19. What is a life worth? So, today being Tuesday, March 31st, 800,000 and counting.
1: Right. It's all now. Moment to moment. The projections into the future are done with care, with caution, because we don't know.
0: Right. We don't. just know the numbers are increasing. We know that.
1: Yeah. So we're in this very strange space between stories, as Charles Eisenstein Hmm. pointed out recently. The space between stories, which I think is a fascinating way... Of putting our dilemma, so to speak, psychologically, Mm -hmm. emotionally, Mm -hmm. metaphorically, societally. And,
0: And the two stories are also lives and economics. What do you mean by that? Deciding between deteriorating economies and saving lives. Yes. Let's use the United States as an example, because that's probably one of the clearest and most evident examples of struggles between saving lives and the economy. We have a world leader, the president of the United States, who's debating or has been debating uh, until recently about getting people back to work as quickly as possible so that the damage to the economy is reduced or minimized. While you have his experts, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, who heads the medical side of things, arguing that that's too soon to go back to work and that we've got to spend a lot more time, energy and effort on containment. So what is a life worth? What do you think, Harry? Harry.
1: We're talking about economics, but it's more than that, I would say. The most recent example was yesterday, the Pentecostal minister had a service at Mm -hmm. his church, and the congregation came and filed in and sat and shared in the same space and did everything that we're being told not to do.
2: Uh-huh.
1: in the name of the Lord, in the name of worshipping together, and how important that is, blah, blah, blah. So we've got that going on. We also have stuff going on, I've read recently, was it today, in Hungary? Mm. In Hungary, that they're basically in a state of martial law and absolute rule. The government there has been voted powers well beyond what we're seeing here in Ontario and the emergency act and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And to the point where people are concerned that they've now created the conditions for tyrannical rule, essentially, absolute rule. Yep. So what is a life worth? Well, we have to talk about these lives, not just in a medical sense, but in the sense of freedom. what's happening to our society. Freedoms, Freedom and responsibility, those two things kind of bouncing off each other. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Bringing in all kinds of ethical questions, too, right?
1: Yeah, sure. So when ventilators are scarce, who do you save? And they're basically saying, well, we'll save the ones who have the most chance of survival. Mm Mm-hmm. Which means that the old folks are going to be allowed to pass away, likely, the ones that are weaker, like the culling of the herd.
0: Which is basically saying their lives are worth less.
1: In the balance of things, yeah, I guess. And it's not that they're making those decisions easily. Oh, Obviously, absolutely not. Yeah. So, what I'm saying is that we being in our senior years, that is certainly disconcerting. But I also understand it completely. So, what else? What else?
0: For me, the thing that comes to my mind when I think about human lives versus economics on a very simple level. And I'm not even talking from a governmental position. I'm talking about even a society where we actually measure humans by dollars, period. Yeah. Well,
1: that's where the arts come in. The energy coming out of the arts community right now is really fascinating. All of these live stream performances, Mm -hmm. these quarantine sessions, Bare naked ladies uh, coming together through Zoom or whatever function, yes. singing as a group, Neil Diamond, it's you know, fantastic. from home, all from home. It's really interesting and heartening. I've noticed on social media the incredible amount of poetry being created mm-hmm. and shared. I'm a bit biased, yep. obviously, because I'm a poet, a writer, but I'm finding that the poetry that is coming out of this situation is quite phenomenal and powerful and just speaks to all the things that the economists aren't thinking about particularly. Right. <laughs> uh, people trying to make government run aren't thinking about particularly, but human beings are thinking about yes. as they're isolated in their houses.
0: A crisis situation which is accentuating those things which we should understand and incorporate into our daily lives
1: sure and also you have to give a nod to the power of technology to help these artists spread the word spread the song spread the images seeing choirs performing Mm -hmm. on the screen and there's like 50 little boxes of heads because they're in different places and and yet they're singing together
0: And I'm also getting more inquiries from people in that regard, things that people sort of skimmed over now. They're actually asking for assistance. They're actually asking, how can I do this? How do I get this out? Is there an easier way for me to communicate with that relative overseas and so
1: on? Sure. So more than ever, people are going to be connecting into these kinds of technologies that are connective in nature. Now, there are glitches, of course. We've just read about how Zoom Mm -hmm. The company Zoom is being investigated for privacy issues rumors that they're dipping into our data Mm -hmm. as we're on Zoom doing our thing. And you've told me before that's something that you've known about for a while.
0: Basically, anything that's electronic can be used for very positive or somewhat nefarious purposes, depending on who's at the helm, what's being done, and what the purpose is. So if it's electronic, without getting into a lot of details, because I'm not an expert in that area either, I can just give it to you from a perspective of being involved in technology on a daily basis, and and essentially anything that's electronic can be traced in one form or another. So while you're communicating with friends or family or relatives overseas, whatever the situation might be, there's also an opportunity for the gathering of information, how many people are on the video, how much time is being spent, where are the individuals that are on the video. You get this consumption data, you get data on location, you get data on usage, on increased or decreased usage, depending on what's happening. So you can correlate a lot of information at that time. In terms of invasion of privacy, a lot of it might be broad. It may not be specific. They may not be looking for what every individual thinks, like your bank accounts and so on. But point is, is that you are being watched, heard, observed, or collected, period.
1: Well, pieces of our lives are being archived in yes. different formats.
0: It may not be harmful. It may not be dangerous. But it is definitely something that is being done without your permission.
1: Right, right. So there may be some... Who knows, out of this situation, there'll be more regulations connected to these companies and, and how much information they can gather and what kind of information they can gather right? You know, from people using their technology.
0: But there might be something else here that we could discuss. What's interesting to me is that a lot of people have a broad sense of this being done. They may not understand the details or the intricacies of doing it and yet they still use it, which tells me in some ways that connecting with people is more important than the fear of the technology. The fact that you know this, is it going to prevent you from ever using Zoom again?
1: Well, it depends on what comes out of this investigation. If it's discovered that Zoom is gathering much more information than usual, I may feel whether it's anonymous or not, Mm -hmm. I may feel put upon, and if there are other platforms to use, maybe I'll go use another platform, Facebook or FaceTime or whatever it is. These companies know that it's competitive too. They don't have a monopoly on that form of communication. So like any economy, if you don't like what a company is doing, don't Mm -hmm. patronize them.
0: Right. But again, in reference to our topic, which is what is a life worth, this is not just about economics or dollars. It's also about how we're valued as people versus being a commodity, right? Yeah. And and essentially, this particular crisis, or any other multiples of similar situations, it demonstrates there's still a very strong economic power and control base that sort of displaces the human aspect from an economic standpoint.
1: I think you're right. I think there are boardrooms all around the world in which people are not discussing how we can help the situation in terms of the virus and help human beings in our time of need, but probably talking bottom line, talking about how the situation can be, quote unquote, exploited in terms of
2: mm-hmm. how
1: the company in question can find its way in and through its services, keep its bottom line healthy. Mm-hmm. So, But it's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of corporate think, isn't it, to do that. Yeah. Unless you have a CEO like Bill Gates or someone who seems to be cut from a slightly different cloth and is thinking differently than typical corporate CEOs do. Right. Um, but how many of them are there in the world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
0: that's not the only thing that's happening. There's also a lot of customization going on, I believe. There's opportunities here to take advantage of other things too, like even segregating parts of society. For example, right now, we have a situation that essentially divides age groups. This particular virus, we've been told that the virus tends to affect a certain sector of society more than others, i.e. the elderly, the weak, and so on. You can now also take that information and begin to customize your products and services. So you can now develop special programs for seniors, different programs for children, education, for example. Another area that's changing is the whole exploration of home education, where people can't go to schools. There are other things here that are also being weighed, which aren't essentially just about caring about people. They're business opportunities.
1: Of course. Because, you know, this virus will come to a kind of end at some point. There will be an after. And companies who are smart and want to survive the situation are going to have to customize, adapt, shift, change according to the conditions and find new ways of existing in what could be a very different world Mm after we're through. Mm -hmm. Who knows how different? But it will be different. I can guarantee you that. How different? I don't know.
0: Bringing it back to the value of a human life, are these other things that we're talking about, are they part of the human value?
1: Well, yes and no. Um, From the point of view of we human beings who are for the most part, in our own homes or apartments, introspecting more than we ever have, mm-hmm. thinking about our mortality more than we ever have. From that point of view, we are reevaluating the value of, of human life Yes. and what's important to it and what's meaningful in it more than we ever have. And we don't necessarily expect corporations to do the same thing. I don't anyway. Right. I expect them to do what they always do. But it has given them an opportunity. They're not faceless entities, corporations, are people. Yes. Making decisions, right? Human beings like you and me. And they're facing into the same situation we are as human beings. And so hopefully their humanity will come through in the decisions that are made by those corporations.
0: Yes, a level of moderation and consideration to people beyond just numbers and dollars.
1: Well, I hope so. I hope we see the last of price gouging <laughs> when there's a lack of uh, product, for example. I'm hearing about price gouging for ventilators. masks and ventilators and that sort of thing, which is unconscionable. But as you said before, Peter, these things bring out the worst and the best, mm-hmm. and the worst becomes very obvious very quickly in yes. these situations. It's hard to hide the worst, <laughs> which is good. So we can see who out there is simply out for their own good and who out there is actually caring in terms of their fellow human beings. Mm
2: -hmm. So Mm
1: -hmm. the other thing I want to mention something from our previous podcast, where I had said that the virus Mm -hmm. is a living entity, and as a living entity, we should find a way, if possible, as woo-woo as that sounds, Mm -hmm. to communicate with it and that it is communicating at a certain level and that it has a certain kind of intelligence that we should recognize and respect in a way because we live with viruses all the time. And that got some response from people Mm -hmm. uh, saying, you've got it wrong. Science recognizes that viruses are not living things at all. They are not living things. They are simply pieces of information, pieces of RNA and DNA Mm -hmm. that attach themselves to cells. And the cells are the living things that do the work and create the illnesses, et cetera. But I just wanted to point out to people in response to that, that there are other points of view on this, not simply the strictly scientific point of view, Things I've read, books I've read, that talk about the intelligence of viruses, the way they are able to pass the virus along by encouraging symptoms like sneezing and coughing,
2: uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. It shows a certain kind of intelligence, a certain kind of, there's a life there. It's not simply dead matter in that sense. Also, scientists, astronomers... Etc. talk about life on other planets. And what they're talking about is not this life that we have defined it as such, but life in a different form, a different way of seeing, of mm-hmm. understanding life. There's a potential for that to be out there. So why can't we understand viruses as a different kind of life form that doesn't fit under all of the categories that we have created for life? and try to understand it from a different point of view. That's all I'm saying. Mm
0: -hmm. I understand why we received some feedback on the last podcast, which I appreciated, by the way. It also demonstrates even our individual differences in terms of how we take definitions, whether we take them literally, scientifically, whether we implement some of our own thoughts, philosophical views. You are bringing in other areas beyond the scientific method Because scientific method is very pragmatic and very logical and based on logistics, data, and fact.
1: That's right. My example, too, in response to that um, argument about the virus being a dead thing. Mm -hmm. So if you take a thought, for example, a thought has to connect to an experience inwardly or outwardly of the world Mm -hmm. in order to actually kind of exist. So you could almost say that a thought is very much like a virus. It's reliant upon external resources in order to manifest itself in the world. But you wouldn't argue that a thought is a dead thing or just dead information, would you? I wouldn't. So it's an example, an analogy, let's say, for what these viruses mean or are. I feel they're very much like thoughts in a way. They're invisible like viruses, like thoughts, are invisible. Mm -hmm. But they have intelligence. There's life in them. It's not simply information. Mm -hmm. In the next little segment coming up, we're going to be talking about the economy more Mm -hmm. and about a particular idea for how to keep the economy and people afloat through this really hard time. And we've got uh, Andrew Welch, is going to be piping in uh, yes. with an idea which he feels is timely now and should be implemented immediately to deal
0: with the situation. And is also aimed at supporting people because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the human side and what he's proposing or the ideas that he has are to support people, their spirit, their morale. Right. So here we are, Harry, on uh, April 1st, and we spoke yesterday. Quite a few developments since then. It seems to be ongoing. The numbers are definitely rising everywhere, but especially south of the border.
1: Yep. They keep struggling, especially Governor Cuomo, whose emotions are palpable as he's pleading for, I think, was it a million health care providers? Mm-hmm. He's hoping a million will somehow find their way into New York State. That's incredible.
0: I'm not sure what the number was. You could be right. I know that it's been an ongoing thing, so I wouldn't be surprised at some crazy number. What used to sound really crazy doesn't sound as crazy as this thing continues.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, how are these countries all going to be getting their ventilators, given that every country is trying to order them? Right. It depends on the country, I guess, but there's a very, very high mortality rate for anyone who does go onto a ventilator. They tend to not come off them and they tend to pass away. Right, right. Uh, something like 60% do not come off the ventilator. So I guess as a potential patient, my worst nightmare would be being put on a ventilator.
0: I see this as part of the problem as well, because there's so much information coming out on such a regular basis from so many sources that it really is actually adding to people's discomfort and panic levels. There are so many unknowns and there's no one to explain every single detail. The one thing that's become clearly evident to me anyway is just the fear level. I've never seen anything like it. Well, in our lifetime, anyway. I've never seen anything that has people so rattled. And I've never seen such a variance from individual to individual on this level. One of the things that I find particularly disturbing is that people are now getting on each other, even if they don't say it verbally. They're making a lot of judgments about what people are doing. Some people are adhering to the rules verbatim, and some are complying But they're not as strict in their compliance. For example, myself, I go for walks. I make sure that there's nobody around me. And if I do see someone, I usually have plenty of time to keep my distance and so on. But I know that now I'm even getting looks, even just going out for for a walk. Just
1: being out. Just being outside. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's uh, as if the very air is fraught with toxins. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but more importantly to me is the human response. Yeah. You're being looked at by the same person that every morning says to you, hi, how are you? How's it going? Now suddenly they're either through their window or from their porch or looking at you like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be out here. Yeah, We've talked about this in the podcast, the, the previous podcast. You get to an area where we now start to be each other's patrol and we may create situations if we're not careful where we begin to be our own worst enemies.
1: Well, this is this, I mean this is the template that the people that certain people fear which is as government gets more stringent and laws are passed, you know, emergency laws bordering on military dictatorship mm-hmm. <laughs> in certain countries like Hungary for example, people are afraid that their basic fundamental freedoms are going to be Taken away, and in those countries where these dictatorships have taken hold for long periods of time, that's exactly what the government counts on. Yes, is that the inmates, so to speak, patrol and police each other. Yes, and that's what happens. It becomes a state of paranoia, of constant anxiety and worry. But I'm one of those people. I'm almost seventy, right. and so the government is saying, stay inside, don't go outside. But first of all, I've been self-isolating for almost two weeks now. Mm-hmm. I have no symptoms. I feel very well, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. So if I go out for a walk and somebody's walking toward me, I'll give them space. But I'm not concerned with it being six feet. I'm not, if I pass them within four feet or something, I'm not concerned unless I can see them getting ready to sneeze on me or cough on me or something. Exactly. There's nothing I'm going to catch by walking past someone exactly. through the air three or four feet away from them. I feel the same so way. This yeah. People taking this thing so literally, it's a little bit overmuch, I feel. That's me. You know, I may be completely
0: off base. And that's a very important thing that you're talking about right now because that's one of my, well, that's been my concern since this whole thing started. And of course, I was on this quite a bit before the press really got to it because we're going back to early February where there really wasn't too much going on. And my concern has always been and continues to be as much people's reactions and how we handle it collectively as the virus itself.
1: Oh, sure. I think there would be a lot of stresses and strains on couples who are used to going their separate ways to work each day mm-hmm. and not being holed up with each other for months on end. Mm-hmm. You know, when that happens, you often find out things about your partner you never thought you knew, right. uh, the things that sort of just irritated you now and then, now are daily irritating you, and exactly. you know. I, I think we'll see the end of certain relationships happen after all this is done. And other kinds of upheavals in families will be happening. My wife and I have been talking to her parents who are in a nursing home up in Owen Sound. Mm-hmm. Now, thank God there are no cases of COVID in the nursing home, but we all know what's happening in nursing homes these days, and it seems to be getting worse, and they are petri dishes for the spread of the virus. And so there's a whole possibility now that we may have two 95-year-olds in our household within the next week or even a few days if they agree to it, which means big changes in the house, support bars in the bathroom, like all kinds of things that we have to now adjust our lives to. So we're willing to do it, but it's upheaval, and I'm sure other families are dealing with the same kind of thing.
0: Well, we have a similar situation with one under constant care and the other one living in residence right next door. However, in this particular situation, we're not allowed to either visit or basically approach the building. So there's not much we can do. Your situation is a little bit different because they're both still at least quasi-functioning and able to move around on their own. And this thing that you're talking about as well It's kind of a testament, though, to our value of human life. We're talking about what is a life worth. The fact that you're even considering doing what you're doing demonstrates that very clearly, because not everyone everyone will or is responding the way you're responding to the situation.
1: Yeah, we often wait for cues from the government and from our quote-unquote authorities. So yesterday, I think the director of long-term care facilities of the government, basically said, this is something that you could consider doing. And we hadn't even considered it before. Mm -hmm. It it Mm -hmm. was as if we thought, no, there's no way that would be even possible. But now they're saying, if you can do it, feel free to do it, which makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't you want to take your senior, your dad or your mom, out of a place that is a possible powder keg for the virus? Because you don't know how the staff are handling sanitation you don't know whether they're fully committed there's all these uncertainties but in your own home you know that they will be taken care of to the point of
0: you actually being able to do that we're very fortunate that we live in a country that still has maintained a remarkable amount of calm and able to still rationalize and to have these discussions and not dropping the hammer so to speak at least not yet
1: not yet I mean if this keeps up for three or four or five months which some people say it will, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: these workers who are off work, who didn't come in, or workers who have been laid off, sure, they may get 75% of their pay, now that the government has stepped in on that front, but it may not be enough, for one thing. And it may not be enough for businesses to carry on, because I can see a lot of businesses simply letting go, firing these people, not paying them, just saying, we don't know what's going to happen with our business. We can't pay you. We're not going to pay you 75% of your salary because it's very unclear that we're going to even open again. So they'll just cut the line, right. which is why our local town crier, Andrew Welch, has been pushing this idea of a universal basic income. He feels that giving people, everyone in the country, without exception, rich or poor, a $1,000 mm-hmm. minimum a mm-hmm. month, mm-hmm. would First of all, help businesses survive because they wouldn't have to cough up for salaries Mm -hmm. for workers who are off work. They could focus on handling uh, bills and rent and and keeping afloat, and then when the time comes they could rehire. Uh, It would also alleviate anxiety in the part of workers. We've got something coming up this episode, or this segment where Andrew himself is going to explain the idea. Mm -hmm. It's going to take about eight minutes, but uh, it's a really clear and powerful elucidation of something that really could help. Uh, I'm hoping that the government is going to listen. So are you going to say something? What I like about
0: this as well, this is a perfect opportunity for this experiment.
1: Pushing the boundaries of what governments uh, can and are willing to do in these kinds of situations. But I think Andrew's idea just seems simpler and easier to carry out and faster. Uh, Andrew himself is going to explain the idea. Mm -hmm. It's going to take about eight minutes.
3: Okay, here's the problem. Ottawa doesn't get disasters. I'm more proud than ever to be Canadian. The government of Canada is working tremendously hard to save its citizens, businesses, and overall economy from becoming COVID-19 fatalities. The problem is that they are only working with the tools that are already in their bureaucratic toolbox. Under the $107 billion aid package announced last week, their enhanced employment insurance will pay up to $573 per week, while the Canada Emergency Response Benefit will pay up to $2,000 per month. Effectively the same amount. The numbers are what they are, but it's their implementation that will compound this crisis for Canadians. Everyone has to figure out which category they fit into. And, and then those who think they might be eligible have to apply for the aid. Those applications have to be processed and assessed and then administered. The new EI system is already totally swamped with 1.6 million applications. And there's going to be more. And the uh, emergency response benefit, the CERB, won't even be up and running until the second week of April. And on top of that, The government also plans to pay up to 75% of wages for qualifying businesses. They reached effectively for their hammers when the job called for a paint roller. This pandemic is a disaster. So why didn't the federal government consult the disaster experts at the Canadian Red Cross? I mean, here's an example. When the forest fires ravaged the city of Fort McMurray in 2016, It forced the evacuation of over 88,000 people. That's the third largest evacuation in our country's history. Within two days of that evacuation, many thousands of the city's workers had returned to their family and friends in every corner of Canada. I mean, that's where they were from. They'd come to Fort McMurray to earn some money. They bailed. They went back. And in the meantime, generous Canadians had already donated many millions of dollars to the Red Cross to help those very same evacuees, who are now scattered. So how could this aid be managed? The one thing that the organization had was email addresses. The residents had been told to register with the Red Cross either before they left or after they arrived at their chosen evacuation point. Now, what happened next was unprecedented. Over the course of a single weekend, the aid managers got together with the executives of a major Canadian bank and created a scheme for the world's largest single distribution of humanitarian assistance ever to take place. $50 million, mainly through electronic funds transfers to email addresses within 24 to 48 hours. And This was to be an initial base payment, right? So there's no assessments, there's no case management, just $600 for every adult and $300 for every child, every one. Now that event ushered in an entirely new way of helping people in disasters. You might think that sending money to an email address leaves one wide open to trivially simple false claims, especially as this modality becomes known to everyone. But on the contrary, it is fascinating to know of the methodologies available in today's data world to make sure that such fraud is effectively thwarted. Now, the systems can't automate every single claim approval, but they can do the vast majority, allowing caseworkers the time to manually process the rest. The important points that I want to make are the ease and speed with which the overwhelming percentage are helped. That was unprecedented. Now, imagine that thinking being applied at the national level by the Government of Canada with access to all of the Canada Revenue Agency data and no geographical eligibility requirements. So, we should be pleading with our government right now, forget the EI paperwork forget the CERB applications, and simply give a fixed amount to everyone over 18 with a social insurance number. Now, this would be financially and bureaucratically exceedingly effective. Every adult citizen and permanent or temporary resident who was eligible to work in Canada would receive the same monthly assistance for four months. No applications, no assessments, and no concerns of anybody getting paid twice. The only serious effort required is to track down those who cannot be paid directly by auto deposit or electronic fund transfer from the information already on file with the CRA. I mean, this would be automatic. Anyone who's unable to easily register online to link an address with their SIN, those are the people we have to talk to. And furthermore, this kind of program, instead of only helping those already out of work, might also facilitate Ottawa forcing Ontario construction sites and Alberta oil fields to close for the duration and send their workers home. I mean, we're in a disaster. Obsessive, unrelenting economic growth is non-essential. The workers would be covered. Now, of course... Not everyone needs this emergency basic income. I mean, why, you may well ask, should those who are able to stay working from home in high paying jobs and those who are wealthy enough to not have to work at all anyway, why should they be getting more money from the government? Well, the reason is simple. In a disaster, it is much, much easier to initially just give it to everyone. And this will give the federal accountants lots of time to refine the rules and decide who is truly deserving and who might be less so. And then when everyone files their 2020 income tax returns in 2021, it becomes trivial math to take back any excess from those who clearly had no need for it. It becomes essentially a loan. The federal income replacement hammer proposed now, does not catch the challenges for food bank users, newly isolated pensioners, post-secondary students out of residence rooms and food plans, etc. Nor does it reward those essential low-income frontline workers who are risking their lives right now to keep grocery stores open and hospitals clean. And the more universal paint roller package that I'm talking about would indeed reach those people and reward those who deserve to be rewarded. Yes, it would cost more, but it could also replace all existing EI and welfare payments for the emergency period and eliminate the need for food banks to stay open at full capacity. Moreover, the universal reduction in stress and anxiety alone would boost Canadian immune systems, promoting better healthcare outcomes. I mean, Desperate times call for desperate measures. And fortunately, Canada already has the expertise in-house to handle some of the largest disasters on the planet with innovative and powerful solutions that are at the leading edge of humanitarian assistance. Why isn't our federal government consulting those experts and adopting their proven strategies? That's my question.
1: My concern is that after we get through this situation, Mm -hmm. that normal will be the old way where governments are running the country like they're a company. Right. Well, uh, my hope, and again,
0: it's a terrible hope in a way because what I'm hoping may require more time, which means more people will get sick and more people will die, including ourselves possibly here. I mean, it's not like we're uh, immune to this, but I believe personally that The longer this goes on, the better chance we have of not going back to our old ways.
1: That's an interesting idea. So the longer this keeps up, the less chance we'll go back to the old ways. Now, why do you think that's the case?
0: Because I think this COVID-19 situation is very clearly demonstrating all our strengths and weaknesses. And as it continues, both of those things will be accentuated. And it will be very, very difficult, I think, if it goes on a lot longer and a lot more lives lost or people who are seriously ill and other things that will be happening along with it, all the things we've discussed, relationships, work, all kinds of things that we really haven't asked too many questions about because we go about our day-to-day lives. We've never been pressed like this. And I think that the weaknesses will remain embedded More so than the strengths, similar to the discussion that we had in our last podcast where I suggested that based on actual studies, that we as human beings are much more concerned with loss than we are with gain.
1: Okay, I'm just trying to understand how, for example, the RBC, uh, Google, Apple, how they're going to operate differently than they had before this thing started just because we went through this crisis.
0: They may not even choose to operate differently, but we may accept them differently. I view them as businesses that are created and move forward by virtue of what it is that we accept or don't accept. They have to adjust to whatever the people want. That's the way I see it.
1: Yeah, but are we going to stop buying Apple smartphones? No, we
0: may not. No, we may not. We're not. But, but, no, we may not stop buying the products, but our habits could change. Maybe we won't feel compelled to buy that new model every six months. Maybe we will have learned the lesson that those aren't the important things. That if you have something that functions, that you don't have to replace it just because it's got a new bell and whistle. When it's completely
1: operational and works and does everything you need my, to do. My, my, you are an idealist. <laughs> I don't see that happening. Sorry, the, the acquisition of things. Yes. That uh, people feel are important in their lives, like cell phones. People will get the next model because technology won't stop promising new and greater and better. People will not stop being enticed by that. I frankly don't see that slowing down so much, but maybe what will change from my point of view is how companies treat their workers, just in terms of being aware of their needs, of their family needs, of their needs to be away from work for periods of time. Maybe we'll increase the amount of holidays that workers are entitled to and more compared to Europe, for example.
0: But that's all interconnected, Harry. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying even those changes alone will create a different kind of thinking. So when I say about the item being purchased, I'm not questioning whether or not that's going to continue. Of course that will continue, but it will continue in a different way, is what I'm mm-hmm. saying to you. So companies, governments, if we as a people make those changes, they will have to make some changes. I'm not for one moment thinking that everything that we do today is going to flip over and everything's going to be completely different. No, but there will be changes. There are already changes that are not going to go back to the way it like was. what? Education, like what? for example. Education is going to take a whole different approach when this is over. So more online. More okay. online, perhaps looking at different ways of teaching Old models that required changes, where the changes have been very, very slow, as this continues, if it continues for an extended period of time, it won't be that easy to go back. Let's use a very specific example. Remember when color TVs came out? Yeah. If I had given you that color TV for a couple of weeks, you probably could have adjusted back to black and white fairly easily. But if I give you that color TV for six months or a year, and then I tell you to watch a black and white TV, going to be a lot more difficult, don't you think?
1: Yeah, I think I get your point. If I get used to, during this period, buying fresh veggies from my local farm cooperative, Mm -hmm. rather than going to the grocery store, let's say, I might get used to how delicious fresh and local produce is compared to a grocery store bought, and will Carry on doing that rather than patronizing the grocery store. I can see these kinds of lifestyle choices right. changing as a result of this. So, yeah, there is that. I guess the other question I'm thinking about too is how will people operate now after this in groups when the all clear is given? How will we? be with each other? Will we be as willing to hug as we used to be, to high-five? Are we going to be cautious for a long time afterwards in case the thing has lingered in some way?
0: (laughs) Well, it's great that you bring that up because my feeling on that is this. The more you don't do that, in many ways, the more you crave it because it's a natural thing for humans to want to make contact, to touch. So, I think the more we're denied it, the more that has a chance to ferment or want to be expounded on. The fear is going to be challenged by
1: our desire. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that first hug, if you like.
0: (laughs) That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. See, already you're appreciating things on a different level. I'm talking about our core thinking. As an example, and let's be specific here. How much money have you spent in the last three weeks for personal things, not your basic necessities. But for yourself, how much money have you spent in the last three weeks?
1: Very little. Right. I think I've ordered a book or a CD yeah. on Amazon. But beyond that, I haven't spent on eating out, of course. I haven't spent on gasoline being self-isolating, essentially. right? So, yeah, I haven't spent much at all. Okay, that's my Why first I- question.
0: My second question is, now that a few weeks have gone by, Have you found that despite the perhaps anxiety that you may be experiencing by what's going on in the news every day and so on, I'm probably experiencing that less than most people I talk to. But are you finding that you're starting to almost recuperate in some ways? Are you finding that you're resting better? Suddenly you have a little bit more time to address things, that you're more focused. Is that happening to you yet?
1: Well, I mean, resting better is a very personal, individual thing. I'm not sleeping that well for various reasons, not necessarily related to the virus. But as far as sort of feeling more calm or copathetic about it all, not yet, because I'm still coping with well, I just retired, as you know, yep. so that's a new and, and kind of a shocking change in my life. And I'm still kind of finding my way through my days in terms of finding a rhythm or finding ways of being active consciously, which I wasn't doing before because I was actually working, and that was kind of much of my activity was there. So uh, I haven't yet sort of fallen into a new normal if you like. And uh, so I'm still a little bit up in the air and floating about. Uh-huh. Um, I am writing more. Okay. For
0: me, it's, I feel that certain things needed to change. That's the way I felt for a long time. So part of me, despite the ugliness of this, and as I said, people suffering and being hurt, there's a part of me that is saying this could be very, very good. Perhaps I'm not experiencing it like most people. Mm-hmm. Do I miss going out to places? Yes. Do I miss seeing people? Do I miss, you know, meeting up at the local cafe, having a cup of coffee? I do, but I don't think I miss it the same way because I think there's a part of me that's saying this is necessary to get to the next step.
1: Yeah, I think it's a chance to remake ourselves and to remake, remake our society in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It won't be a revolutionary world that is unfamiliar or anything crazy like that, but I think there will be shifts and changes for sure, for sure. We are, I think I said this in our last segment, we are in a space between stories, as Charles Eisenstein pointed out, and I wrote a poem inspired by that phrase. Would you like to hear it? I would, yeah. Because this is April 1st. And it's National Poetry Month, so it's appropriate that we Ah, share a poem. Yeah, go ahead. So this is a poem inspired by that phrase, A Space Between Stories. The poet said, the moment is poetic. Uneasy, hard to express, harder to understand. But poetic nonetheless, and called for in this place where we stand between stories, breaths. Crowded with metaphors, keeping distance. We are emptied of pretense. Ask ourselves, maybe for the first time, what counts for a life whose death matters more? And what is the poet to do when every second is a wound, bleeding verses and heartache? When the very air is a recitation, judgment on the merits, demerits of a human experiment? Crush the fragile world to our chest, whisper, where you go, I too go. Send our poems into the roiling sky. Let the light of brave stars point the way.
0: This is April 2nd, and we're approaching a million cases worldwide and a quarter of a million cases in the United States. So the numbers keep escalating, and we don't want the cure to be worse than the problem. And of course, the problem is COVID-19.
1: And what's the problem with the cure? What's the issue with the cure?
0: It's an economic issue. Which costs more, to address the health issue or to address the economic losses that it's causing and will cause?
1: Yeah, I think it's very interesting because I was thinking exactly those thoughts in preparation for talking to you, Peter, because there are people in the United States, especially right of center politically, who are presenting this kind of choice to people. So they're saying to you, okay, Peter, imagine you're the average worker in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you two scenarios to choose from, okay? Okay. One scenario is this. You can make 25% of your current income and your family members who are working will make 25% of their current income. There will be millions and millions of people who will be out of work over a period of, who knows, five years maybe, let's say, where the economy tanks, where there will be violence, increase the violence and crime on the streets, where there will be more people dropping under the poverty line because of the situation. Now, the other scenario is this. You can choose, Peter, average worker. You're going to make the money you're currently making. You're going to go to work Industry will carry on, business will carry on. You're going to take care of your family through all this uh, COVID business, and there will be some seniors, in particular, who will die as a result of carrying on as business as usual. Okay. Okay. That's the other scenario. Okay. You can choose which of those two scenarios you'd like to live through over the next few years. The first scenario addresses health over economy, obviously. Right. Right. So in the second addresses economy over health.
0: I would choose number one.:
1: Okay, so you'd be willing to make that sacrifice, which would mean changing your lifestyle considerably, correct?: Yes And that's worth it to you.
0: Absolutely.
1: That makes sense. Okay. It, it makes there sense. are people I guess I guess I'm pointing out that there are people in the United States who feel that the second choice is the better choice causing less pain and less death overall perhaps mm-hmm. than the first choice to make that choice though you have to sacrifice certain parts of the population
0: well it's a difficult choice no matter how you look at it i see a much bigger issue here than just economics and health i mean those are the two primary things that we're dealing with but i see the first one is also an opportunity to make a lot of other changes hmm
1: yeah so what kind of changes do you think you'd have to make if you chose the first scenario? What, how would that change your lifestyle, let's say?
0: No, I don't remember the exact wording that you described.
1: 25 percent what you'd get.
0: Yes, 25 percent of my salary. Obviously, i have to make some enormous adjustments. Maybe I wouldn't even be capable of making the adjustments under my current conditions. I may have to change my life altogether to do that. But the other side of that, which is scenario number two, I wouldn't want to go there under any circumstance, so I, I guess uh, I'm one of those people that views adjustment or changing my current condition. I would be more willing to contend with world and scenario number one.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And as, as much as you and I talk about this is tragedy or opportunity, yes, there are opportunities, but people who can't make ends meet find it less easy to talk that way than right. we do in our middle class homes.
0: Right, but people can't make ends meet under the current system because of the way we're set up now.
1: Yeah, on the other hand, you could argue that there are industries who are going to benefit greatly from this pandemic. Makers of medical equipment, masks, ventilators, all kinds of support materials will of course do well. Yes. uh, Unless they're selling these items cheaply at wholesale. Have you heard as to whether any of these companies are contributing to the cause by selling these masks, et cetera, at uh, wholesale prices?
0: No, I haven't as yet. Neither have I.
1: Neither have I. And I think we'd, we'd hear that on the news, wouldn't we?
0: We might, or there could be things going on that we haven't quite heard about yet. So let me pose this another way. Okay. I believe that one of the things that makes it very, very difficult for people to make decisions, especially economic ones, is that... We're all willing to do a lot of things that we're not currently doing if we believed that things are being done fairly. When you talk about a 75% reduction in income and so on. If everyone in the country or on the planet felt that the system was fair, we could much more easily adapt or adjust to those numbers because everyone would take responsibility, including corporations, governments, and so on, and then, right. and then there would be a sense of better distribution. If you improve the distribution, you don't necessarily have to reduce. Let's take the excess here and bring it over here. There's more of a balancing that 75% reduction in income may not actually translate into a 75% reduction in your level of living or comfort. As long as you were assured that all the hierarchical systems that are connected to you are all doing the same thing, i.e. your mortgage holder also takes a 75% cut. You're the person that he owes money to takes a 75% cut. I mean, I don't know what the actual numerical equation is here. All I'm saying is, is that it paints a very negative picture only when you see a system that is not able to change or adapt.
1: Right. Now, there are two other elements I think I'd like to talk about with you, Sure. This segment of mm-hmm. uh, this podcast, and that is the word patience. Yep, is now really important. People are becoming impatient. There's this wave of kind of you know, okay, we'll deal with it. We'll be patient for a while, and then this point where we start to get impatient again, and for change and for things to get back to normal, so to speak, whatever mm. that is. And I think part of the reason for that is, again, technology has to take its role in this seriously. Technology has speeded up things. We've come to expect results very quickly. Yes. You know? So why isn't there a test for COVID-19 that can be done at home on your own, like a pregnancy test, for example, mm-hmm. and you get the result almost immediately and you'd know? A lot of the the anxiety is over not knowing whether I might be carrying it or someone else. But if I can know that fairly quickly, we could test the entire country and the figures would suddenly be up to date and immediate. And we'd all know where we stand, whether we need to self-isolate or whether it's safe to go out into the community for us in general. So where's the technology? Why hasn't it happened already is my
0: question. Mm -hmm. I agree with you that... That would be a phenomenal tool to have.
1: Sure, and I'm hoping that people are working on that now as we speak. But in general, we're impatient for the end of this thing. We, we somehow feel the technology, medicine, vaccine, it should all happen within a couple of weeks, which is why idiots like Trump, sorry, I'm going to say it, idiots like Trump, were calling for things to go back to normal by Easter weekend.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No patience, no sense of reality in terms of the situation so that's another element that we have to be aware of i think as we cope through this time is that we may be dealing with months and months of this kind of situation
0: yes absolutely and i would also say and again this is my own feeling on this whether it's by accident or intentional that's one of the lessons that we need to learn from this virus it is teaching us patients whether we want to have it or not
1: yeah absolutely
0: Uh, So this virus is addressing a lot of our ailments. (laughs) Being an ailment itself, it's actually demonstrating all of our ailments. It's bringing to the surface all of our ailments because it's testing every fiber of our being, our mortality, our economic concerns, our relationships to one another. So to me, you don't want to stop and listen? Well, you have no choice now. Or you can't ignore it. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say you have no choice. You have a choice. But uh, if you want to fight that battle, it's not going to be under normal circumstances. It's basically telling you it's not your timeline, it's mine.
1: Right. And it's almost like the immune system of society is being tested. Yes. To see how, how resilient it is, how uh, the condition it is in right now to Mm -hmm. to, to deal with this societal virus of change that is rushing through us right now. So very interesting analogy. (laughs) And let's
0: look at the most obvious. Even if you don't understand all the science, we know that this virus is predominantly based on the immune system being able to counter it in the absence of vaccines, medicines and so on. Our only defense and our best defense is our health. So if we base our discussion on that... This is addressing one of the most significant problems on our globe today. Obesity, diabetes, levels of... It is addressing the most basic, the most fundamental things of human existence, which is our ability to function physically, mentally, which is all based on our ability to rest, eat well, lead somewhat balanced lives. Right. How much talk have you heard over the last few weeks about anything that addresses our basic physical and mental health.
1: Only general uh, statements about eating healthy and still getting exercise and that sort of thing. Nothing more particular than that, really.
0: Exactly. Uh, Exactly. And that's like a huge red flag. Millions and trillions of dollars to do this and to do that. And let's support this and bring this up and pay all the businesses. And you're not... The amount of money here is not going to solve this particular problem. So... It's a kind of a complex issue, but to me, it's amazing that there isn't more talk about health issues, just basic health.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. In times of crisis, people's attention narrows, it seems, and Mm -hmm. the focus is always on what are we doing now? What are we doing now? So it band-aid sort of thinking, dealing with the symptoms rather than the cause, all that stuff. Well, you know. Sorry, go ahead. No, no talk, as I, as I mentioned, I think, in the first segment uh, of this podcast, no talk about how we treat animals and how we must change that first and foremost in order to prevent any more of these viruses from happening in the same way. So going to the cause, none of that talk at all. But there's another element here that I want to just bring in too, Peter. Mm-hmm. And that is this. The fact is we have a globe – of more than 200 nation-states, I guess you could call them, right, Mm -hmm. with borders, some of them with walls, (laughs) great walls. But the fact is that each country, because of this way of giving up the world into countries, each country has its own sort of plan, its own way of dealing with this crisis, Mm -hmm. its own attitude towards other countries friendly and unfriendly, with whom they could cooperate to deal with this. And so you get this hodgepodge of activities and responses that aren't coordinated particularly well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so hotspots then move from country to country around the world. That's what we've seen. If we had a federation of unique areas around the world, not countries, not nation states, not borders, mm-hmm. Specifically, in the way they are, this situation would not be the way it is. There could be a more global coordination. So it's an idealistic thought, but it's a thought about the world that existed prior to nation states. Yes. Borders and countries weren't always on this planet.
0: Right. I agree. And in the absence of having that federation type system that you're talking about that once was but no longer is, the achievable equivalent would be even with our existing borders, would be increased collaborative and cooperative measures between nations. And for that, you also require the type of leadership that embodies that concept. It needs leaders from every country to understand that at this point, you've got to kind of put aside your individual differences and deal collectively with this bigger problem which I think, if that was done, it would automatically begin to filter into other areas. And it would begin to show not only the politicians and governments, but the people of the world that this is what we have to work towards. Yeah. This is not just about COVID-19. COVID-19, to me, is a catalyst. If it isn't COVID-19, I think it would be something else. We were already beginning to see some extreme situations with the polar caps melting, the fires of Australia. If you thought about the gravity of that, that was quite serious with the loss of human life, of animal life, and environmental destruction. The reason it didn't get the attention that COVID-19 is getting is simply scale and stretch, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, Greta Thunberg not being taken seriously by most right-wing thinkers in these countries.
0: Again, she's a very courageous young girl who has a great message, which not everybody necessarily agrees with. It's more about that all these things are occurring, but none of them seem to be enough to get everybody on the same page. Well, COVID-19 has changed that.
1: Well, it's an opportunity for international coordination and cooperation, which could then, post-COVID-19, be applied to the environment, for example.
0: Yes, and so many other things. This is not just about one thing. Yeah. This is almost like a world meditation to me mm. about creating an energy that vibrates around the entire globe and really connects us. Again, obviously, I'm speaking idealistically. I don't know that it'll be achievable in my lifetime under the current system.
1: Yeah. As we mentioned in our previous podcast, I mean, it is a time of tragedy and it is a time of opportunity. And as you say, we're in this kind of World meditation, it's a great phrase right now. It really is appropriate. And we need to take this time and meditate individually and as families, as communities, as countries, mm-hmm. and as a world, and find our way through this to a place that hopefully is better, Yep. and lessons learned, and we move forward in a positive way.
0: John Lennon said it a long time before we did. Imagine.
1: Exactly. Let's leave it on that note. I think that's a good note to end this three-part podcast on. Imagine, John Lennon.
0: Beautiful, Harry.
1: All right. Ciao.
0: Ciao. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.